Welcome to another episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host, John Banks. Hey, John, how you doing? Tom, what's going on? Uh, you know, we have an interesting, little interesting, kind of a divergent path here tonight. You know, when we talk about the Battle of Antietam, we think it's important for three reasons. One, it's the bloodiest day in American history. Two, it's Robert E. Lee's first invasion of the North. And also, it was the thing that sparked the Emancipation Proclamation. Battle of Antietam on, on September 17th, 1862. Five days later, September 22nd, Abraham Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And it, it, I think, John, a lot of, what a lot of people don't realize is the Emancipation Proclamation only freed the enslaved people in the rebelling states. So therefore, it did not free the enslaved people in Maryland, which is a really confusing thing. That wasn't until, until 1864. So we were, we're going to talk a little bit about the Black, the African-American experience uh, in Sharpsburg around uh, the Battle of Antietam during this period. And we have a, a, an excellent guest, Dr. Emily Amp, who I've heard speak before, uh, Emeritus Professor of History at Hood College, has written a book, Black Antietam, African-Americans and the Civil War in Sharpsburg. So we really can't wait to get to her. I, I, I don't want to uh, put too much pressure on you, Emily, but uh, I heard you speak at the Antietam in Institute and it was it was really fascinating. But John, I know, first of all, we, we kind of get a little before we get deep into the episode, we talk about our, a little bit of our Civil War travels. I know you had another one this past week. Yeah, it's crazy. I keep doing this. I, ha I have to get out of the house, Tom. So went to Columbia, Tennessee, which is we live in Nashville. So Columbia is roughly 40 miles from downtown Nashville. And we went to the shores of the Duck River because I, I took our I have a May 2nd, 1862 copy of Harper's Weekly magazine. And in it is an illustration showing Union troops in 1862 crossing the Duck River across the bridge. The only thing that exists that remains from the bridge are one pier and one abutment. So we took my Harper's Weekly down there and lined up the illustration with from the south side of the river, the first time I got to the south side, I was super excited about this. It was very cool. And then what was also neat, Tom, is that along the river, we're, we're finding these old bottles and and it was super cool. We also found some more modern day uh, stuff down there, computer parts, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of trashy. But to see that history, to see that pier in the abutment, pretty cool. Yeah, what have you been doing? Well, I went a little more of a traditional spot, but my what Colleen and I went uh, down to Fredericksburg. It, it, John, you and I both come growing up in Pittsburgh, and now I'm spending some uh, living half the time, at least in Gettysburg. Blows my mind how close we are now to these places. Fredericksburg was only two hours away. So we went down there and did the battlefield, walked, uh, walked the sunken road under Marie's Heights, and then uh, shot down to a uh, couple of the other sites there, Chancellorsville in particular. I walked into the Chancellorsville Visitor Center, and I recognized the voice. It was Frank O'Reilly behind the desk, the guy who wrote the classic book on the Battle of Fredericksburg. And I, of course, don't know him, but, I, but I've heard him speak many times. I heard his voice. I said, Frank! And he looked at me like, who, who are you? And I said, oh, just a awesome. man. You, you, know, you know how that goes. But, I'm uh, loving it. Always good to get down there. there there's just so much around that area. We're going we're gonna to head back down. But back to the topic at hand, back to uh, Antietam and beyond. Uh, Dr. Emily Ampt. Emily, I'll tell you, it was about a year ago you spoke at the Antietam Institute. We've got about eight or nine speakers, and usually it's a lot of left flank, right flank battle stuff. And my wife and I saw you listed. We thought, boy, this is going to be a challenge. 
And you blew everyone away. It was fascinating. It was a topic that that no one had. I mean, we don't talk about this topic very much, but about the impact of the the, the black African-American folks uh, in Sharpsburg, in that area, both slave both enslaved and free and the impact of the of the battle and their experience. You wrote that book, Black Antietam. Uh, can you just tell our audience off the start why you dug into this topic, why you wrote this book? Well, thanks, Tom. And thank you for your, your kind words. Um, I'm really pleased to be here on your, your podcast. And um, yeah, the the book, um, it was kind of a my, my um, pandemic project. I had actually started it just before the pandemic, but I got a chance to finish it because of lockdown. I had been working on the African-American history of Washington County, where Antietam is located and here in Western Maryland, for oh more than 10 years before um, I started the book. And you know, I, I would go to Antietam and I would see... Um, what, you know, good stuff, but little stuff, the battlefield presented about the African-Americans who lived there. And over time, I became aware of how little of the Black story of that area was being presented and was known generally and was, was known to people who know Antietam, the battle. And it just I became more and more aware of this gaping hole in the story of the battle that is told, especially since the battle is so critical to African-American history on a national level. Yeah. And um, I thought, you know, this is a story, the Battle of Antietam is, is something, it's a historical event that is so central to our history locally. And and it is, it's an African-American pivot point and yet the the 400 or more African-Americans who lived in the Sharpsburg district, the census district in 1860, they're absent mostly from the, the narrative of Antietam. And you know, they were eyewitnesses, both slave and free, as you say. And, and there must have been thousands. There were certainly hundreds, but probably thousands of Black men in the armies at Antietam, not as soldiers, but as workers in those armies that came here to Antietam. And, and I thought, well, somebody should write a book about that, but not me. I have a different task. I'm writing a history of slavery in Washington County, and that's what I'm doing. And then I thought, well, who else is going to write this book, Emily? Um, so I, I thought, you know, I have so much of this information already in my files. It really wouldn't take that much to expand it. But Emily, you're not a Civil War historian, I told myself. But, you know, I thought I really didn't have to be. I'm a social historian of slavery. And that was the story I wanted to tell, how this huge traumatic event, um, and the Civil War in general, a huge traumatic event, uh, affected the lives of the Black people of the Sharpsburg area, and how they perhaps played a role in the battle. So here, here's why I'm super excited to have you on, is I know beyond a few select names, Nancy Campbell, who worked uh -huh. for, toiled for Earl, uh, farmer uh, William Roulette, B beyond that, and Jerry Summers, and some of, some of the, the very basic names, I know virtually none of these people. So could you highlight some of the people who, in your research, have kind of bubbled to the surface and who our listeners should should know about? Sure, sure. Yeah. And that was one of the other things that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
that piqued my interest in this, that the same couple of images, the picture of Nancy Camel and the pictures of Jerry Summers, were used to represent the Black experience of Antietam. And yet, um, Nancy Camel, we have no record of her being an eyewitness. She was as much an eyewitness as most people were, and that she certainly lived on the battlefield, and she must have taken refuge from the battle. But we don't even know where she was during the battle. We have some good guesses, but we don't really know. Um, and she left us no account of her experience during the battle. And Jerry Summers actually left us a written, well, he left us testimony, sworn testimony, of some of his experience immediately after the battle. And yet, those and we know we know we know that he um used to tell people he used to talk to tourists about his experiences in the battle as an old man and yet no one preserved his stories of the battle that he told to tourists and his testimony is hardly ever cited and so you know I thought, we have a picture of him, and yet the picture pops up, and people say he was a slave on the battlefield. And that's kind of how his his experience of the battle is reduced and 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 produced and and used. And I thought there's got to be more beneath the surface here. And there is. There's a ton more. I was shocked at how much I was able to find. So, um, for example, uh, people who deserve to be better known um, are the people who have left us narratives, uh, Hillary and Christina Watson. And they are, I would say, the next best known people, but they are, you know, awesome narrators. Um, Hillary and Christina were a married couple who were enslaved. Hillary on the, he was on the Otto farm, the John Otto farm, and Christina was enslaved at a tavern in town. It's very typical of Western Maryland that they were married, but enslaved in different places. And during the battle, they had different experiences. Uh, Hillary on the farm, he was left behind by the Otto family to look after the farm. He ran into a Confederate soldier who broke it into the house and he expelled him. He, he um, encountered a lot of, of the Confederates who were on the farm. He uh, actually went and got um, a Confederate guard to take care of the farm at one point. And then eventually when the battle started and the shells were falling, he decided, I'm out of here. And he took one of the horse, some of the horses and escaped with them, or you know, not escaped from slavery, but he took them and escaped from the battlefield across the Potomac River to a friend of his master's. And eventually, in the next day or so, came back with them. Before the battle, he went into town to check on Christina, see how she was doing. Um, she, in town, was serving food to Confederate soldiers for a few days before the battle. And then when the shells started falling, went down in the cellar with her white enslavers, and wrote out the battle in the cellar. Um, and they both have a lot to tell. We have their stories because they were interviewed in 1913 by a man who was putting together ordinary people's stories of the great battles of the Civil War. And he interviewed four or five people from Sharpsburg, including Hillary and Christina. He wrote, he put Hillary's name in only because Hillary used his own name when he was talking about himself and it came across in his dialogue, but he didn't, uh, the author did not use Christina's name and he presented them as if they were two completely separate people so that he could, I think to sort of present it as if I've done a lot of research, look, I found this person and that person, but you know, they were actually in the same house living as husband and wife. And, 
and researchers have been able to identify them. I didn't know that other people had identified them as husband and wife, that Christi had identified Christina, but I identified her independently and then found that other people had too. And so we have this, have their stories as they were written down, supposedly in their own words in 1913 and published two years later in a book. And they're awesome stories, supposedly in their own, uh, as they spoke them. But but there's so many other stories. And one of my, um, should I stop talking now? No, we love this. Keep rolling. Keep <laughs> um, rolling. One, one, of my, one of my really um, great finds, if I can say so myself, and it was you know hugely lucky, really, because I was following up on someone else's footnote. So, you know, she led me to the source. And the person whose footnote I was following, I have to give credit, was um, Kathleen Ernst in her book, um, Too Afraid to Cry, which is just a wonderful book. It yes. was one of my It's behind models. me. It's behind me here in yeah, great. Yeah, Manor. Yes. I wanted to do for African-Americans what she had done for the civilians in the um, Maryland campaign. So I, um, I followed up on a footnote. She mentioned a Black preacher. And I thought, oh, that's something I need to follow up on. And the footnote led me through another work uh, that had quoted this Black preacher's biography to the Black preacher's biography. And I think that Kathleen must not have had access to that work because she was too good a historian to have left this source untapped. But I think in time since her book was published, this book was the, since Kathleen Ernst's book was published, the Black preacher's biography was made available online. That's where I found it, the whole thing. It's a rare book now, but it was there online, the whole text. And it is the biography of a man who was an AME preacher in the um, Sharpsburg, Frederick, Hagerstown area during the Civil War and in, and in Hancock, Maryland as well. And he was um, serving in the um, I want to, Middletown area during the Battle of Antietam, living just at the foot of South Mountain. And so he, his family witnessed the Battle of South Mountain. And the book is written by his son when he grew up. The little boy who became the author of this book was five years old at the time of the battles of South Mountain and Antietam. So he tells the story as he witnessed it as a child, but also, I think, sure, using his family's memories, the stories his parents recalled and told in the family through their adult eyes. So it's really the family's memories of the Civil War through this, you know, the Black family's experiences. And um, stories of South Mountain are particularly chilling. They say almost nothing about Antietam. It's as if South Mountain, which they saw, was the vivid battle for them. And Antietam, which they went, where they went and walked the battlefield afterwards, they were just like, they had nothing more to say. Tell us more about that. I, I, I'm, as Tom is, I'm fascinated with the Battle of South Mountain. Yeah. Fox's um, Gap and, and all the fighting up there and, and yeah. what some of these people witnessed was, was horrifying. Yeah. Well, they lived at Crampton's Gap and they, um, they were just living there, this little black, this black family, mother, father, uh, and several children, teenage children, and then this five-year-old boy. And the I mean, one morning they woke up and the Confederates were camping all around them, um, a couple hundred yards from their house. And one of the things that he tells us, that the narrator, this who was a boy, a little boy at the time, 
he tells us that the um, Confederate soldiers would come freely in and out of their yard. They would come in and out of their house and they were mostly on friendly terms. He um, sold, quote unquote, sold the soldiers spring water in his little toy bucket from the spring in their backyard and they paid him in Confederate money. Um, he tells us that one time um, a soldier was rude to his mother in her kitchen and she um, grabbed him and threw him out of the house bodily. And then she went to the Confederate officer in camp and complained and received an apology. But she also he also tells us that his mother slept. His father was away on his circuit, riding the circuit during the days when the Confederate soldiers arrived there at South Mountain. And so she, the woman was in charge of the family. I should mention, this is the Rideout family, the family of the Reverend Daniel Rideout. So Mrs. Rideout, Caroline, was alone with her children in the house. And the little boy tells us his mother slept with a dagger under her pillow at night and carried it in her dress during the day. Oh so she, you know, put on a good show she was also prepared for anything. And then during the battle, you know, they woke up. They, 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 clearly, they knew something that tensions were building. This family did. And that morning, he says he was the only one who ate breakfast because he was oblivious to the atmosphere and the rest of the family was too tense to eat. And then as the shelling or the, the gunfire began, they were watching and, and you know, the family was watching and they could see the, the troops across, you know, Mr. Whip's cornfield or wheat field, I think he says. And then there's a point at which a bullet smacks into their the wall of their house and goes straight through inside. And you realize at that point in the narrative that they're standing outside their house watching this from their oh front gosh. yard. And this is not the only civilian narrative I've read like this, where people are civilians are so caught up and I think full of adrenaline as they watch this, you know, the soldiers begin to fight. And it's only when, you know, the shell explodes nearby or the bullet hits the wall or whizzes past their head that they think, oh my God, I, I'm in danger here. The family, the Rideout family, when the bullet goes past them into, the, into their house, they decide to go down in the, in the cellar. Went down in their cellar and the cellar has windows. So they're on the hill. The hillside it's the foot of south mountain and the house has cellar windows and they watch the rest of the battle from their cellar windows around sometime in the middle of the fight day of fighting there's a lull in the fighting and the um father and the 14 year old daughter catherine go upstairs and out into the front of the you know, outside the house in the front yard to get some air and there's nobody around apparently, but a Confederate cavalry officer rides up and he's angry. And I assume it's because the fighting's not going well. And he sees them and he takes his weapon out, his gun, I think a, a pistol out, and he aims it at Daniel Rideout and he pulls at his head and he pulls the trigger and the gun goes snap. And he aims it two more times and it just goes snap, snap. And he curses and he rides off. And the family says later, he could not kill the Lord's anointed. This story, you can see how they told the story in the family. You know? But also, it, you know, would he have done that to a white family watching this battle? I don't think so. You can see the anger and he's he feels safe 
taking the frustration out on a black man. But but I think not. I think I think there's a heavy racial component in this story. And and then the family, of course, being a minister's family, they interpret it through a religious lens. So it's really, it's one of those stories that you can see a lot of different ways. And the man rides off and they're fine. Another part of that story, if you'll indulge me, um, I, I love this narrative so much. Before the battle, I forgot to tell you this part, the morning of the battle, as the family is you know, clearing away breakfast, a soldier, a Confederate soldier comes into the kitchen and he's sort of teasing Mrs. Rideout and he starts to sing Dixie. I wish I was in Dixie, I'll live and die in Dixie. And she says to him, and you can't tell the tone from the way it's written, but she says, be careful, young man, that you don't die in Maryland. And you, know, you don't know if she snaps it at him or if she's saying it seriously or fondly or how, but she says that to him. Emily, and, what what is the what is the name of this account? And is it on <laughs> in this book? And is it on archive.org now? It is on, I think, archive.net, but it's on one of those um on one of those full text things like Google Books. It's Google Books or archive.net or but, you know, one of those. In, in, in your in your book though, you do it but, at the but end. I've, but I've reprinted it in yeah, my yeah, in, yes. in my the, the, the accounts of uh, count of five, there's uh, Archie Rideout yeah. and Hillary Watson and Christina Watson and Jerry yes. Summers. Yes. And one I other have, person their, their I testimonies. Have five five yeah. four or five um of those of the 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 main the black narratives of the battle. Yeah. Of, of the two battles in my book. Yeah, so those are sometimes yeah. appendixes. I roll my eyes at appendixes, and those are very valuable in this book. Yeah. They, yeah. they they really yeah. add to the to the texture of the book. And we we jumped around this before, but I know Hillary Watson was the story when you spoke at the Antietam Institute that I was so fascinated about. Especially, he's in the auto farm near the Burnside Bridge. For those who are don't know quite where it is, by himself. There are Confederate soldiers who come into the house. First thing you think, was there fear that they were going to be grabbed and taken back? You know, these these folks were interacting directly with Confederate soldiers during a battle. Was there fear they were going to snatch them and take them back to the, to the Confederacy? That's a great question. There was a lot of fear in the Black community when the Confed whenever the Confederates came into Maryland. Um, but it was mostly among the free Black population. Um, they're, they're, the Confederates seem to have respected enslaved people as fellow mm -hmm. slave owners' property. And somehow that seems to have gotten across to enslaved people, or at least to their enslavers. Three Blacks had more to fear, as events proved eventually in southern Pennsylvania. Um, and I think Pennsylvanians had more to fear than Marylanders. But um, the in Sharpsburg, and on the auto farm, uh, Hillary Watson doesn't seem to have had any particular fear of the Confederates, partly because when they first arrived, um, the autos were there and welcoming the soldiers, the officers and cooperating with them. And so, you know, it's it's all very, quote unquote, civilized. It's all congenial. And then later, when Hillary encounters the single soldier who has broken into the house, he, as he tells the story later, Hillary says that the soldier was afraid of him, Hillary, and that he, Hillary, was, you know, a big guy, and he says, I could have whooped him. 
And so he chases him out of the house. And then he goes to the um, nearest you know, headquarters or field command or whatever and, and asks for a guard to be placed on the house, a Confederate guard. Yeah, I've, I've run across Hillary's name in reading about Antietam. What, what happened to him? He stayed on the farm. When he was freed, he stayed on the farm. You know, when emancipation came to Maryland in November of 1864, uh, like many enslaved people, he stayed and continued to, in this case, continued to work for John Otto. And he worked there until um, until he was too old to work, I guess. He, he was a lifelong Sharpsburg resident. He eventually moved into town and lived on High Street. Uh, he built a house on High Street, which is still standing today. And it stands just a few doors down from Tolson's Chapel, which I know you want to talk about. But Hillary was a member of Tolson's Chapel. He and Christina were members of Tolson's Chapel. And they are buried in the Tolson's Chapel Cemetery. Lived two doors down. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in Tolson's Chapel. I've walked around Sharpsburg many times and just happened to walk past it and kind of press my nose up against the window. And it's a small post-war chapel, right, Emily? Yeah, so Tolson's Chapel is a Black church. It was built just after the Civil War by the Black community in Sharpsburg. And it was, you know, I think, quite clearly their act of freedom. We are free now. We we're all free now. A lot of them had been free before the Civil War, but now we are a free community and we are building ourselves a church. There was no Black church um, anywhere near Sharpsburg before the Civil War. So now they were free and able to build a church. They did so. They did it on land that was donated for the purpose by a Black property owner in Sharpsburg. There were a surprising number of Black property owners in Sharpsburg. They owned little parcels all through town. And on they were one of the clusters of Black property owners was on High Street. And so one of those men donated, one of those families donated some land which became the site of Tolson's Chapel, which was named after one of its early ministers and the cemetery there. The cemetery may predate the um, church and it may even predate that post-Civil War founding. We don't really know. We don't know how old the oldest graves are. The ones we have dates for are post-Civil War, but there may be older burials there. And for our listeners, if you want to visit Tolson's Chapel. You can you can actually go in. I believe it's open infrequently. I'm not quite sure the hours, but I know in next summer it's open one Saturday a month. I think it's the first Saturday, but I'm not sure. Excellent. I've always wanted to go inside and and do a little snooping around oh, because that is great. It's, it's really an interesting place. Beautiful. It's one of it's one of those out of the way places that people who go to see the battlefield. There's all these places where they can go in town from the German Reformed Church, which is on Main Street, which was a Ninth Corps hospital uh, during and after the battle to to obviously Tolson's Chapel, too. So, yeah, and you can find I mean, Jerry Summers is buried there. Some of the names we talk about are, yes. are buried in that little cemetery. I've gone there you know, behind the chapel to, to to see those those graves. Emily, it is it is fascinating. Just... It was so many years later that these folks did stay. Uh, with their enslavers after they were free. Uh, John, uh, Hillary Watson stayed on the auto farm. Jerry Summers stayed and lived on the Piper farm. He, Mr. Piper gave him a, a house. There was, there was also a story of Jerry when he was young, 
I think it was after the Battle of Antietam, Union troops came through and grabbed and tried to force him to to enlist in the army. And Mr. Piper went and said, that is... Well, we don't know quite what happened there. I mean, we don't know that they forced him to enlist. Jerry might have been like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to... But Jerry was 16 and he was enslaved. And normally at that... So what Tom's referring to is an episode that happened in 1864, it must have been 1864, I'm not positive though, I'd have to look it up, when a black unit, a black regiment, uh, some company of a black regiment came through Sharpsburg, stayed a few days for recruiting purposes, and I think this just must have been so exciting for the black population of Sharpsburg, but we don't know who they recruited, I've tried to figure it out, from their roles, but I have not been able to link any members of that regiment to Sharpsburg. The They did leave with Jerry Summers, who was 16. And then, uh, and, and before they left with him, um, Henry Piper, his enslaver, came to town and was like, no, you can't have him. And they roughed him up, the soldiers. They were like, no. And I just imagine what that must have been like also for the, yeah. you know, black population watching carefully from a distance and not letting any emotion show but watching these black men rough up mr piper a wealthy farmer that they all knew and like oh my god look what's happening look what's happening he's getting beat up by the not beat up but you know roughly ejected from the camp and he claimed i think that they broke his finger or something like that so he had to go home in you know without his his 16 year old enslaved boy who was the the chief farmhand at that time a chief enslaved farmhand on the piper farm and then they left for baltimore and took jerry with them and so then he got up a henry piper got up a petition by all his friends explaining that he was a good loyal unionist and he he also says you know that um, sharpsburg had voted for the new state constitution so yes this was in 1864 uh, the one that uh, was, you know, for um, abolishing slavery, and that, um, you know, they were all good unionists. And then he took that off to Baltimore, and he went to Frederick, I think they didn't get as far as Baltimore, they got to Frederick, and he went and he brought Jerry back. And I guess Jerry's mother was happy. I don't know whether Jerry was happy or not. Maybe Jerry was longing to get away and see the world and the war. A lot of men enlisted voluntarily in the United States colored troops. But Jerry never left again, as far as we can tell. And he did live out his days on the Piper farm. Emily, I want to make sure I can, our listeners and I can wrap (laughs) my head around this, okay? Because I I knew nothing about this, okay? Uh So USCT troops come with, obviously with white officers, Yes. Come marching through Sharpsburg. And they camped there. In 1864, correct? And they find Jerry Summers and they take him away to make him a soldier. They signed him up to be a soldier. They recruited him. Yes. That's amazing. And and this is why Tom and I are very thrilled to have you on, because these are stories that have been pushed to the margins of history Mm -hmm. and our listeners... This is great stuff. This is great stuff. They're just fascinating human stories that you yes. don't think about, and you can almost feel the emotion of, of what those folks would have done. Tom, I think we need to mention our our, our sponsor, don't we? I think we do. It's about time. I love mentioning our sponsor. Civil War Trails is our sponsor. This podcast brought to you by CWT, the world's largest 
open air museum offering over 1500 sites across six states, including over two dozen Antietam campaign driving stops. And you can request a brochure, Tom and Emily, from civilwartrails.org. And of course, Tom, as we all know, when you spot a Civil War trail sign, what are you supposed to do? You go to that sign, you put your phone on reverse angle camera, you lean in and you take a you take a sign selfie and you post it as hashtag sign selfie. And Civil War Trails will will retweet that for you. Absolutely, Drew Gruber, the executive director, of great. Loves, he loves that. He loves that. There we go. Thank you, Civil War Trails. Yeah. Thank you, Civil War Trails. I worked with um, Civil War Trails to get a marker put up at um, St. Mark's Lapins, where I started my research. Outstanding. And I worked Emily in Nashville to get a USCT marker. Over at a day one site, there were two two days of the battle in Nashville. Over on, off Polk Avenue, over in over in industrial part of Nashville, very cool. Yeah, I wanna I wanna say that, although you know you were mentioning the people who stayed with their former enslavers when they were free, but there were, on the other side, plenty of people leaving mm -hmm. slavery during the Civil War. Um, escapes from slavery seem to have accelerated once the war broke out. And after the Battle of Antietam, it looks like the evidence is only anecdotal, but it really seems, it's convincing to me that there were more escapes after the Battle of Antietam and after the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Both of those events seem to have, have really um, spurred people in this region to leave slavery. And wartime conditions made that more possible in some ways. It made it less certain, but it also meant that enslavers weren't putting ads in the paper and offering rewards, and there was no machinery of hunting down escaping slaves. So um, we do see an uptick, and, and there's a lot of evidence of that. And um, there's, a, for instance, a man who was um, enslaved on the Henry, sorry, sorry, the Samuel Piper farm. It was Henry's brother. And um, this man was named Tom Henry, sorry, he was named Henry Thomas. All these Henrys, very confusing. So Henry Thomas was a young man, military age, enslaved on the Samuel Piper farm near the Potomac River. And he um, escaped sometime in the fall of 1862, probably after the battle. He had an elderly mother who was living free in Sharpsburg, and he'd been supporting her. He was enslaved, but he was supporting this free elderly mother. And when he got up to Pennsylvania and got work, he continued to send mother uh, money home to his mother. And then he enlisted in 1863, he enlisted in the U.S. Colored Troops, and he, made, he got his employer to send his enlistment bonus back to his mother. And he died um, down south. I think it was in Georgia, not sure, sorry, but it's in the book. Um, he died in service of disease. But um, his mother then, with the help of people in Sharpsburg, uh, applied for a pension after the war as a survivor of a soldier. And because her son had died in service, she was eligible for a pension. So, you know, these, and that's sort of, you know, one of the stories I was able to find that had not been told before that. Um, someone that family and its relationship to the united states colored troops and their different relationships to slavery it's interesting emily i'm curious about the research 
process. You mentioned that you, you found some sources online and you live in Western Maryland. Mm -hmm. How much information in the archives there or at the Antietam Battlefield Library, which I've done some research there, what what stuff did you find there that helped you write your book? So um, I did not find much at Antietam because it was mostly closed and or in storage in the period I've been doing my research, but the librarian there was super helpful in digging things out when I needed them and sending them to me electronically. As I mentioned, I wrote this book during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And so um, most libraries were closed. I relied a lot on my files that I'd been assembling for a decade before this, but the more specialized Antietam related research I had to do online. And people were awesome you know, contacts and librarians and archivists. It was a, it's a kind of research that people have been doing for a while now, but it really amped up during the pandemic. And so, um, you know, many, many thanks to all of the people out there who, especially library and archive professionals who made superhuman uh, efforts during that time to make sources available electronically. And um, that was just such a such a boon to researchers. And after the book came out, was there any sort of reaction or did you get any further information that you you thought to yourself, oh, I wish I had known that when, the, when I was you researching know, the book? So just the other day on your blog. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I, you read that. I'm sorry. Oh I found a link and it was actually to a letter from Elizabeth Piper that I had been looking for and I found it. I didn't, for some reason, I missed it, missed the link on your blog, but it was published on somebody else's blog, like from Ohio. Dan, Dan Masters, yeah, yeah, a friend yeah. of mine. Yes. And I, oh my God, there was the letter. I had, I thought it was, you know, buried in the depths of, of um, Antietam's library and I had never been able to get to it and there it was online this whole time so I wish I'd seen that full credit to Dan Masters by the way who sent that as he is wont to do has often sent me Antietam stuff it's a it's an amazing letter from it is Elizabeth Piper although I must say that that another prominent historian has has mentioned to me that that he doesn't necessarily believe that that's Elizabeth Piper describing what was in the Piper house at the time. But oh, we'll leave that for further digging. Well, so. And and information. You know, I I found some little snippets quoted from a family member that I thought would be in that letter that were not in that letter. So I'm still searching for the, you know, the er source for those, but, um, and it, in a way it sort of conflicts with that letter. So I don't know the, the whole Piper evacuation, I think still needs to be clarified, but this is what history is about. You know, Absolutely. We keep so, Emily, Emily, could you touch on one thing? You, you, there's, there's so many interesting aspects here, but you mentioned earlier near the top, of the number of black men who were in the armies oh. at the Battle of Antietam, not as soldiers, but in the armies. And people often don't think of that either. Could, either. Could you tell us a little bit about that and their roles? Right, yes, thanks. Um, so yeah, I began to realize that that needed to be a significant part of the book. So I wrote a chapter about that. Um, of course, 
black men were not recruited into the U.S. Army, into the U.S. military until after the Emancipation Proclamation. They were actually serving in the Navy from the beginning of the war, but we tend to not think about that. But in the Army, they weren't allowed to serve as soldiers until 1863. Um, and that was because of the Emancipation Proclamation, which said, let's recruit them. Um, but yeah, they were from the beginning of the war serving as cooks, mule drivers, servants, teamsters, laborers. They were digging ditches, you know, doing all the all the stuff an army needs to have done that don't have to be done by soldiers, can be done by any kind of worker. And of course, in the Union Army, they were almost all free laborers, although there were some slaves in the Union Army. And one of them was from Hagerstown, and I tell his story, just a tiny story in the book. In the Confederate Army, they were enslaved, and they were doing all the same things. More of them were, there were more personal servants in the Confederate Army, um, because it had that culture of personal servants. And all those men converged at Antietam with the armies. And so I wanted to try to get at their stories. And I found that surprisingly little had been written about them and their lives, especially in the Union Army. So I just wanted to try to excavate some of those stories. And what I found was I could find stories, but it was really hard to find what they, you know, what they did at Antietam. I could identify men who had been at Antietam, but I couldn't really find out much about their experience at Antietam. I had this wonderful story of a man named George Slow, who you know, was in a, you know, who served a soldier, who you know, an officer who was at Antietam, but the officer and George Slow got separated a few days before Antietam and then reunited after Antietam. So where was George? <laughs> you know, it was just so frustrating, but, you know, I, I still, I use George as a sort of um, emblematic soldier, uh, not soldier, ser soldier's servant, and told his story because I'm sure he was quite typical of the men who worked as personal servants in the Union Army. And then I used another man as sort of a typical soldier's servant in the Confederate Army because I had both their stories in some detail. And didn't we just touch on a little one of the motivations for Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation where, where by doing this you could... <laughs> Sorry, what? Say that again? Didn't we just touch on uh, one of the aspects, one of the motivations for Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation in that it could add soldiers to the Union Army, bulk up forces, and deplete the Confederates in a way that these slaves were doing the wor doing work. And if you freed them, if they if you inspired them to escape, more Southern white men would have to do it. It would it would, it would uh, negatively impact the Confederate Army. Is, is that accurate? I think so. It is not my field, the politics of the Civil War, but clearly Lincoln's um, war motives, the Union's war motives shifted over time and emancipation clearly was in part a military strategy. Um, if that's, I don't know if strategy is quite the right word there, but it was you know, a military um, tool. But from the beginning of the war, Southern slaves were escaping. They saw this as an opportunity. And as soon as Union troops moved within you know, reach of any enslaved people in the South, they were a magnet. And that's why this, the, the Union 
had to change its policy toward enslaved people in the South, which it did quite early in the war. At first, it was like, hands off those slaves. You are not to you know, let them come into the camps. You are not to, um, to shelter them. Um, you are not to let them stay with you. You must return them to their enslavers. And this we see in Maryland. We see it in Western Maryland. But, but quite quickly, the officers, like General Butler most prominently, said, hey, we, you know, first of all, we have to do something for these people. And secondly, it weakens our enemy if we take the slaves away. So let's do it. Let's call them contraband of war. And this quickly goes to, um, to Congress. And Congress has a new policy, I think, in March of 62, or no, I'm not positive, but I think it's in March of 62 that Congress says, yes, um, any escaping slaves will be um, sheltered. Emily, I'm curious, you, you live in Western Maryland. Do you visit the battlefield often? Not that often, actually, but that's uh, sort of for um, logistical, personal reasons. I've been uh, unable to drive for much of the past three years for medical reasons. So I um, am not there that as often as I'd like to be. But I'm just curious when you do go there, like when I go to the battlefield, I'm partial to soldiers from Connecticut given oh. live there for a little bit. And, you know, I'm wondering, well, I wonder what Captain Newton Manross of the 16th Connecticut was thinking you know, during the fighting in the 40-acre cornfield. Do you look at it from a different perspective? Do you look at it and wonder, you know, I wonder what X black person was doing during the battle here as I'm walking near the roulette farm? Or did, you, you may have a different perspective on... Oh, absolutely. Things? Yeah, I am not a military historian. So... um the troop movements are something I had to learn to write, learn a little bit about to write this book. But, but details of the troop movements are they're a closed book to me, really. And um, I I find battlefields horrible. You know, um, I went to the illumination once, and I could barely get through it. It was so horrific to me. And people talk about it being beautiful, and I I totally understand that it is a beautiful sight. But to me, it was emotionally overwhelming because I knew that each of those candles was a casualty, um, someone dead or wounded, and and in pain, and and they just went on and on and on. And I think, okay, when I drive over the next hill, I'll be out. And I wasn't out; it was just went on. And and so that emotional response is what I have to the battlefield. And um, it's lovely. It's a lovely place. But but you see, all my all my responses to you are emotional. But when I look at um, the auto farm, I think about Hillary and I think about the walk, how far his walk was about a mile into town to see Christina. And I remember him coming back at night, the night a night or two before the battle and the Confederate soldiers were sleeping along the road and he had to walk past them or over them. And he was almost tripping on them. And he said they were sleeping like hogs. And, and I just, you know, to me, that that's a story that, that to, is alive to me. And I'm always wondering you know, who lived here, who lived here in town, um, you know, which of the people 
my people, the people I know lived here or lived there. So, you know, those are, that's how I relate to the, the landscape. It's through the people I research. And I don't research the soldiers. To me, they're a mass. Um, they're not individuals. The individuals are the people that I write about. I think that's interesting. I am not a right flank, left flank person either. Super interested in the individual soldier and tracing the arc of their life, whether they survived the battle or not. And for our listeners who uh, Emily referenced the illumination at the battlefield every December, I think it's the first Saturday, Tom, or the second yes. Saturday, yes. 23,000 can candles, one for every casualty in Antietam uh, are uh, placed upon the battlefield and at night uh, visitors can drive around the battlefield. And as Emily mentioned, it's a, it's an awe-inspiring, sobering sight. And, and as she mentioned, I, I it has the same emotional impact on me when I go there too. So because John, you, you hear 23,000 uh, casualties. It's just hard as a human being to get your brain around how many people 23,000 is or are, however the correct use is that it, it blows you away when you see that. You know, at Gettysburg they they have an illumination at the cemetery where there are several thousand. This is 23,000 all over the battlefield. Emily, I know you you, you think it's going to end and it, and it doesn't. End. And people start lining up that day early afternoon. It doesn't start till dark and it goes till about midnight. It's it's uh, it's an incredible uh, experience. It's it really, really And, you know, I I think this is this brings us really into the the aftermath of the battle when each of those 23,000 was a body lying there or in somebody's barn or in somebody's house and bleeding or being having to be buried and and when i was doing the research for this book it, it, i had to read a lot about the aftermath of the battle which i think to many of your listeners is something they know a lot about but i i thought i knew a lot about it i had to learn so much more and the impact in that relatively compressed amount of time when I was doing the specialized Antietam research, it was quite, it was quite affecting. And I became kind of a bore, I think, to my family and friends. I would tell them, you know about the Battle of Antietam? Well, you don't, I don't think you do. And I would tell them, you know what I learned today? This. And, and they would be like, Really? And, you know, they were, I think they were shocked and, and horrified as they should be. But I think, I wonder if I was like, really became an Antietam bore. Uh, not that there is such a thing, of course. Absolutely not. There's no such thing. There's no such but, thing. No and, such thing. <laughs> and, you know, Steve, um, oh, Steve, what's his name? His book, the Hell Book, the Shark Oh, Shark. Hell came oh. the Shark Church. Yeah, he and I had beer in Cruzeville too. When hell came to Sharpsburg, we call him, yes. we call him Steve. What's his name too? Sometimes, yes. so we just get too big don't don't. I hope he's not listening because he's going to be a guest at some point. Steve Cowie, <laughs> who when I I was in the early stages, he was really helpful in pointing me to some sources. So shout yeah. out to Steve Cowie. Um, yes. But he was um, his book came out a little while after mine, maybe you know within the year after mine, and um, you know just mind-blowing mind-blowing what he found yes. so anyway emily in the in the last few minutes of our podcast here i'm gonna throw a soft maybe it's not a softball question if you could go back in a time machine <gasps> and talk to any you have one care one 
one of the 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 black people in, in your book who you, you reference in your book who who would you like to talk to and what would you ask them any one of them would be fine because any one of them could tell me so much about the community um but i guess i would choose one of the women um and probably one that we haven't really you know learned much about yet like i wouldn't choose christina watson because we already have so much of her story or nancy camel i would choose someone who i you know mentioned just in passing but who you know has a little bit of an intriguing story i might choose all right for instance i told the story of um which we haven't mentioned yet tonight of an 11 year old girl who was enslaved on the um on one of the farms, just my mind is blank again, as a nursemaid, and and I have quite a bit to say about that in my in the book. But um, her story was told by the child that she was the younger child that she was looking after when that white child grew up and was interviewed. But no one ever interviewed the nursemaid, and I would maybe talk to her or to her mother who was also enslaved on that farm, but who is just in passing mention in the story. So, you know, someone like that, who probably had really interesting experiences, but because they don't get into the record, they're not, we don't know about them and how interesting they would be. But any person, any eyewitness to the battle would be, or anybody who lived there at the time would be a fascinating eyewitness and could tell us so much more then we can piece together from what they've left us. Emily, you have a, you have a website. You have a website too, right? I do, I do have a website. It's emilyamp.com. It's E-M-I-L-I-E-A-M as in Mary, T as in Thomas. Like the abbreviation for amount is my last name. It's a German last name. Emilyamp.com. And I've got a blog. I'm putting up some more posts this month. I don't blog that often, but I'm putting some up this month for Black History Month. The book is Black Antietam, African Americans and the Civil War in Sharpsburg. Dr. Emily Ampt has been our guest. Emily, it's been fascinating. I knew it would be, but it's been even more illuminating than I thought it would be. I know John has enjoyed it. I have too. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise in this work. It's been so much fun to be with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we'll get you a free meal at Bonnie's at the Redbird. We'll, Tom I'm and I will we'll buy you breakfast in Keatesville. We're looking forward to that. Terrific. <laughs> Tom, can, do, you, do you hear a sound in the background, right. Tom? Vaguely, vaguely. It might be. We it's might be banjos. ending. I think I hear the banjos. I think it's the banjos. Take it away. Banjos. Uh-huh.